0: This morning's scripture is Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, and that's page 830 in your pew Bible. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, in addition to all this, take up the sword of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for the saints. And this is the word of the Lord this is the final in a series called the spirit in the church as we've been focusing on the holy spirit this year and and (laughs) this text uh was brought to me months ago and i find it significant uh, Part of this passage is put on all of God's armor. This is Ephesians six eleven. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. And it just so happens that Ephesians six eleven is on. I've got my armor right here, the armor of God today. Anybody else got one of these? Can you raise it if you got it? I know you guys do. There are other folks here who have it, and uh, this is for Jennifer Holly. Jennifer's here with us this morning, and uh, she's been battling. Uh, an illness, and uh, we're just behind you guys all the way, you and Philip and the incredible kids. And so I wear this for you. And In fact, I just feel led to to pray for the Hollies real quickly. Can we join together in prayer? Lord, we're just pointing a laser right now uh, toward uh, Philip and Jennifer and those amazing kids of theirs and pray, especially for Jennifer, lifting her up, praying for healing, praying that uh, this whole situation... Uh, would be one in which you are glorified, knowing that in all things you're working for good. Uh, No doubt evil is a part of this, as we're going to talk about it today. So make us unabashed warriors with prayer. Uh, May we be the prayer warriors you've called us to be for Jennifer and all others who are uh, facing challenging times at the moment. But we lift her up as our sister, member of our tribe here, member of our family. And in whatever ways we can be of service to her and Philip, lead us to those places where we can be there for them. Uh, May she know of our love and and sense the surrounding of our prayers, not just now, but, but in the days to come. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So our final sermon with this series is, are we really at war? Yeah, talk about spiritual warfare and prayer warriors. I've got to confess to you like I did last week, I grew up in a church that was high church and kind of intellectual, and, and to talk about spiritual warfare just was uh, beneath us. We were too enlightened for that, too elite for that, so we just didn't, didn't go there. Unfortunately, So it was quite under-discussed at my church, but it can also be over-discussed as well. Hence the wisdom of C.S. Lewis in his preface to the classic, The Screwtape Letters. He said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. I think that's a great point. Because we are wrong and naive to deny the reality of spiritual warfare. At the same time, we need not become obsessed by it. Uh, The way some people do today with end times and that kind of thing. No, Jesus didn't give much attention to that. He was too busy doing ministry. So again, we've got to find the good middle ground on all this. We need to stay attuned to the reality of spiritual warfare, but not sensationalize it and get too preoccupied with it. Well, in Ephesians 6, as you know, Paul describes the armor of God, and it culminates in verse 17 where he talks about the Holy Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. It says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And right after this, notice what Paul says, because I think there's a trait here we need to undertake when we talk about spiritual warfare. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay, what's the word? Oh, I didn't hear it. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. I thought about that stay alert. Be alert, it says in some translations. And I thought about an email I got from my former student, Michael Adams, about 10 days ago after there was a terrible incident, you might remember it, at at Georgia Tech And this is part of the email he sent. He said, hi, friends. He's a campus minister at Georgia Tech. He said, hi, friends. This past weekend, a Georgia Tech student was fatally shot by police on campus. His vigil was held last night. Following his service, a group of protesters marched to the police station. The rioting resulting in three students arrested, a police car being lit on fire, and one officer being taken to the hospital. As you can imagine, our students are pretty shook up. We are all feeling the weight of this tragedy We were there when the rioting started. Our hearts were deeply grieved and struck by how desperately we need a move of God in our nation. And then he says this, in the midst of such chaos and pain, I felt powerless. But at the same time, I looked around at all taking place in that riot and suddenly felt very sober. And then he said this, we are all feeling very awake, (laughs) very alert, stay alert. We are all feeling very awake. Facing this reality of darkness, we are also filled with confidence that we do not serve a powerless God, but rather one who wants to intervene and who desires to bring His kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And Michael's right. We do not serve a powerless God, and He is at war with powers of darkness. Ephesians 6.12 It says, for we are fighting, not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. And because He is at war with them, you and I are at war with them. That might not sound very sophisticated, but it is biblical reality. And thankfully, we can clothe ourselves in God's armor. I'm not going to do what a lot of people do on this passage because i 'm going to be dancing around a whole lot uh, today, and there 's a lot of scripture to cover. Stephen, are you in d- doing double duty with, with PowerPoint as well? So say a prayer for Stephen because there 's a lot to cover here, a lot of scripture. You might even want to uh, go back over this sermon later on, follow the outline, and we 'll put the PowerPoint on, um, on, uh, online as well as the uh, the taped sermon. But again, I'm not going to talk about the different you know, aspects of the armor of God. I know you hear that a lot. More foundationally, I want to convince us that spiritual warfare is a reality. It's so obvious when you read the New Testament that, that you really can't cover it all within the context of a sermon. But I want to look at it at three specific angles, and you're welcome to look at your outline uh, if you have it. And if not, we've got it up here on the screen. First of all, with the armor of God, we battle for His kingdom. Now, the phrase kingdom of God has often been used to refer to a tangible place. And by the way, I'm going to be a little more tied to the notes because I want to get this right. The kingdom of God is often thought of as a tangible place where we minister or a place of peace and tranquility. It can be thought of as heaven itself, but in arguably the most significant sense, excuse me, it is referring to God's kingdom that is engaged in battle with evil's kingdom. For Jesus, the kingdom of God means abolishing the kingdom of Satan. The New Testament presupposes that Satan has illegitimately seized the world and now exercises a controlling influence over it. Three times in John's Gospel, Jesus refers to Satan as as the prince of the world or the ruler of the world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of this world approaches. The ruler of this world has already been judged. And then just think about the temptation account. You remember that, Luke 4, 5, and 6, when finally the tempter, Satan, comes to Jesus and basically makes claim that he he owns the kingdom. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. And I want you to note that Jesus does not correct him. Jesus does not say that that's false. Jesus knows it to be true. And then he engages in his first battle with Satan with the temptation. And fortunately for us, Jesus did not give in to the temptation, so there was a preliminary victory there over evil. But along with Ephesians 6, Paul calls the god, Satan the god of this world, as does uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, if you look at that. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan, who is the god of this world, and then in 1 John, he's the god of this world who uh, has the world under his control, right? And so under his power, the kingdom is suffering. And again, in what ways is it suffering? What are the symptoms of Satan's rulership over the world? Well, we see it every day, as you know. Suffering and injustice and illness and disease and division, Uh, racism, anxiety, it just goes on and on. And we're to fight these symptoms of Satan's rule in any way that we can. So again, Satan has illegitimately seized the kingdom here. He's established it and thinks that he owns it, but he does not. And God's kingdom is fighting to get it back. Now, the Gospel of Mark, and I love the Gospel of Mark, because Mark gets busy with this idea of warfare from the beginning. He doesn't even, if you look at Mark chapter one, does it have the birth story in it? No, he doesn't care about the birth story. Yeah Jesus was born he's laid in the manger that's you know humble beginnings that's all great and fine. He starts out by the time he gets to Mark 1:15 uh, he has John the Baptist saying what the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel. And then in just chapter 1, what takes place after that? Okay, repent and and believe in the gospel. Then he has the temptation and has that preliminary victory over Satan. And then immediately after that, what does he do? Heals a man with an unclean spirit. What does he do after that? He heals uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a disease. What does he do after that? He deals with people who are uh, demon-possessed, and he heals them and brings them to newness of life. And then he heals a man with leprosy. And folks, that's all in chapter 1 of Mark. He's already getting down to business with battling evil and all that evil brings about with the symptoms that you and I have to deal with. That's just chapter 1. Now, you get to chapter 3, and the battle is still going on. You get to chapter 3, and you go to verses 26 and 27. Jesus is responding to religious leaders who are saying, Hey, you're using Satan's power. You're using Satan's power to cast out demons, and this is where he does that house divided against itself. Okay, he says this to the religious leaders if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Earlier on he said, What? Well, how can Satan cast out Satan? But this is what we often miss here. He says, Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and plunder his house. Who's the someone who is stronger? It's Jesus. That's Jesus inserting himself into that image. He can enter the house of Satan, who thinks that he owns this house, and he doesn't, and he goes in and overtakes him, plunders all of the evil out of it, takes that on himself, actually, so that we don't have to deal with it in the long run, and he, the stronger one, brings it to where it's his kingdom and not the devil's. A strong man in his kingdom. And then you go on to Mark chapter 5, actually, and Jesus deals with the Gadarene demoniac. Do you remember that? Uh, this is the man who lived among the tombs, ran around naked, and, and cut himself with stones. You can help me with this. Just before Jesus heals this man who is demonically possessed, and there is warfare going on there, obviously, Jesus asks the man, what is your name? And the man says, my name is... I didn't hear it. My name is legion for we are many. And that's a military term right there, a warfare term of a large army unit. He has a large army of demons, and as you know, Jesus defeated the demons in a very creative fashion. Now, finally you get to the cross and the resurrection, and the war is really won. I'm going to go to an often discussed and debated passage, but I think when you look at it under the template of, of this warfare idea, it makes total sense to me. 1 Peter 3, 9 through 22, this is that curious passage where it says, so Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. And some think it was people who had died and were in prison. No, I'm, I'm quite convinced more and more, and I've always thought this, but, but, but even with this warfare template, it makes sense even more. He went and preached to the spirits in prison, and what Jesus was doing was proclaiming His victory over them and their power. That's what He was doing. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers, and right there, talking about the authorities and powers of darkness, accept His authority. They know that ultimately He is in charge. They are now subject to Him. Jesus went to some place after He died, and confirmed to them, proclaimed to them, that he was indeed the victor, and that ultimately they can't defeat him. Now, that was D-Day. Really, the cross and the resurrection were D-Day. We still await V-Day, though. We're in that era which theologians call the already but not yet. And I really appreciate the way Gustav Wingren puts it, a wonderful theologian. He says, "...the war of the Lord is finished, and the great blow is struck. Never again can Satan tempt Christ." As in the desert, Jesus is now Lord, conqueror, but a war is not finished, a conflict does not cease with the striking of the decisive blow. The enemy remains with the scattered remnants of his army, and in pockets here and there a strong resistance may continue. That is the position of the church, and that's where we are. We fight the very same battle that God fights and fought on our behalf. We march on in battle. I could even talk about the Lord's Prayer. It begins with our Father who art in heaven. Do you know that was an act of revolt back then to say that? Because back then, the Caesars, who were either delusional enough to believe that they were divine or wanted to be perceived as divine so it could magnify their perceived power, they didn't want people saying this because oftentimes Caesars would refer to themselves as our earthly father, our father on earth. So to say that was an act of rebellion that could have you persecuted, our father who art in heaven. In other words, it's saying not you, Caesar, Our Father in heaven. That was dangerous to say. I don't think we appreciate that sometimes. But then it goes on to talk about what? Bring down heaven. Bring down heaven to us. You know, may may your glory come and may your name be hallowed on earth as it already is in heaven, because we are at war down here. And later on it says what? Deliver us from what? Evil. It's it's warfare. It's warfare. Which is why someone added on when we do the Lord's Prayer, what? For thine is the what? Kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And it is. And it is about warfare. So with the armor of God, we battle for his kingdom. But secondly, with the armor of God, we execute his will. Now, I'm going to invite you to disagree with me on some of this, okay? We're going to have good people who are across the spectrum on what they think about this, but I want you to get a sense of the thrust of what I'm saying here. People are always wanting to explain the problem of evil. Why did this happen? You know, is it God's will? And we try to solve why bad things happen to good people. It's right to attribute some of that to us because we uh, gave in to sin and allowed sin to come into the world. But is it all us? And, and all the more, is it right to say that it's God's will? Does the God who loves us so unconditionally and so much as if each one of us was the only one in the whole world to love, would He ever want us to suffer terribly? Now, some will say from a certain theological perspective, well, God is sovereign and it's a part of His great plan. Well, okay, that's more of a, I would say, a Calvinist perspective that, that God decreed and foreordained evil. Okay, but then an Arminian over here would say, well, no, God permitted evil. God gave, gave permission for it. But you know what? None of this was on the minds of Jesus and His disciples or the New Testament writers. Now, yes, in all things God works for good for those who love the Lord, Romans eight. By the way, I love the Romans eight just, just when we were making that moaning, singing. I've never done that. That was too cool. That was so Romans eight. But in all things, God works for good. Yes, that's important to understand. No doubt about that. So let me suggest two things though. One, trust Romans 8:28. And all things that happen, God works for good. But secondly, we follow the lead of Jesus and his disciples who didn't explain the problem of evil. They fought it. They fought it. I've been very helped by a guy named Greg Boyd who is actually going to be here a week from this Wednesday. Has written many books. This was an earlier book of his called God at War. It's the best book I've ever seen at uh, Red on spiritual conflict. And, and, and this is what Greg says, and I would invite you to come hear him, by the way. Um, you know, he wrote the book Letters from a Skeptic, which some of you went through in Sunday school. Uh, he's featured in the book The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He's one of the interviewees in that. He's an amazing guy. We'll be here a week from Wednesday, or as we say in the South, Wednesday week. I learned that when I came down here. But what Greg says is we need to focus less on talking about and trying to explain God's will and rather focus on executing His will carrying it out. You know, when Jesus and His disciples confronted evil, they didn't try to explain it. They engaged it. They fought it. They acknowledged its existence and went to war for our sake and for the sake of the world. I love the way Greg puts it in his book. He, tries, he says, we try to explain intellectually or philosophically or even theologically the problem of evil. But he says this, perhaps most tragically, We have surrendered a spiritual conflict we are commissioned to fight and ultimately win for an intellectual puzzle we can never resolve. If instead we followed the example of our Savior, our basic stance toward evil in the world would be characterized by revolt, holy rage, social activism, and aggressive warfare, not pious resignation. Jesus and the disciples understood evil in the world to be ultimately and sometimes directly the work of the all-pervasive satanic kingdom. And this being so, they saw their primary mission as opposing these powers and overthrowing them. Neither Jesus nor the apostles nor any of the New Testament writers tried to explain evil or attribute it to God or to God's permissive will. Rather, they executed God's will of fighting and defeating evil. Now, let me say, it's not wrong for you and me to ask why. Sometimes things are going so badly for us and we ask why. Please know that that sometimes we can't help it. And the God who, who loves us more unconditionally than anyone understands when we ask that question. But there comes a time we've got to move, and you've heard this before, but especially when it comes to this. You've got to move from the why to the what. What do I need to do next? You know what Jesus says? The primary thing you need to do is fight evil on any level on which you encounter it. To do that is to do God's will. You know, trying to explain Why something terrible happened is like trying to be like Job's comforters, who really were not comforters at all and really didn't give adequate answers to Job. No, we fight. And the main way we do so is to share the gospel with others. Let's go a little further in Ephesians 6. Let's do verses 19 and 20. Pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right word so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. Pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. What's our primary means of doing warfare? It's speaking the truth and love about the gospel to people, sharing the gospel. I love that because, again, we're not trying to explain to people the mystery of suffering. Our calling is to explain the mysterious plan that God has for us that we so don't deserve, that is so unmerited, and yet it's so mysterious that he loves us enough to offer us this salvation and eternal life. That's the mystery we should focus on the most that's the good news to share to all and when we do that we're carrying out his will so with the armor of god we battle for his kingdom we execute his will and finally with the armor of god we storm the gates with him now you know where i'm going with this matthew 16 verses 18 and 19 peter's just given the right answer uh i know people say you're this you're that i say you're the messiah the son of the living god And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. And then he says this, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean with the keys of the kingdom? Hey, I'm going to give you the capacity with the Holy Spirit in you to, to unlock people who are lost, people who are wayward, people who are suffering. Unlock the door that they can come and know my salvific presence and the new life that I can give to you. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. That's the powers of darkness. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. There are people still here who are locked up, hemmed in by oppression, by lostness. But we now have the keys. In the older translations it says, you know, what, you, know you have the power of binding and loosing. You can bind the powers of evil with my help through the Spirit. And then you can do what? Loose people to the newness of life. Open them to that when they've never known it personally and because of all this, you know we're going to be opposed. I mean, Satan will create obstructions. <laughs> just go on a mission trip. How I many y'all have been on a mission trip and thought, I think Satan is working against me right here? Anybody ever gone on a mission trip and think, yeah, he's doing his thing? Uh, just go on a mission trip. But he will create obstructions. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.18. This is Paul saying, you know, we wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. We've seen that. He also tries to discourage us. I was afraid the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. Why? He was afraid that, they were, that the people in Thessalonica were so discouraged about everything. Well, the tempter takes advantage of that. What's the next one? Uh, oh, yeah, he's a deceiver. Some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. And finally, yes, Satan tries to sow seeds of discord and division in the church, no doubt. Romans 16, watch out for people who cause division and upset people's faith. Be wise in doing right and stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> is, it, is, it just, is it too superficial to be a prayer warrior? Are you kidding me? That's what we need these days. We're engaged in guerrilla warfare against a large occupying army. And sometimes it might feel like we're not doing much, but again, keep in mind the war is over. We're kind of cleaning up the remaining mess in smaller skirmishes. That remnant remains, and we're not there yet. We're not at the already yet. But we're doing more damage than we might realize. Second Corinthians 10, and Second Corinthians isn't known for talking a lot about spiritual warfare, but I really like what Paul says here. He says, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons and His armor, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments, the source of which is the devil. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. We do damage with the Spirit's help. Now, closing this series about the Holy Spirit and the church, talking about spiritual warfare... Do you and I really realize the power we have within ourselves because the Holy Spirit resi- resides there, because we are the Spirit's address? Do we really know that? We don't just have the kingdom of God in us, as was said in the Gospels. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And, and, and it reminds me about something I read about in high school, about a nuclear submarine from 1963 called the Thresher, the USS Thresher This picture of it made of heavy steel bulkheads and heavy steel armor, and it could dive really, really deeply and withstand a lot of the pressure of the ocean water. But a tragedy occurred in 1963 after it had uh, come out uh, of of construction. Uh, at, At one of its first tests, the Thresher's nuclear engine just quit, and they couldn't start it back up, couldn't get the sub to surface, so it just sank deeper and deeper into the ocean, and the pressure became immense. And these heavy steel bulkheads just finally buckled. And the thresher went down, was crushed, and it had 129 people inside. The Navy searched for the thresher with a search craft. Here's something that was in the newspaper about it. And you can tell it's just like crushed like an egg over there in that picture on the left. They had to take one of these kind of steel ball search subs down, real small thing, and they lowered it with a cable. They finally found it. They finally found the thresher at the bottom of the ocean, 8,400 feet down, a mile and a half down. And it was, it was crushed like an eggshell, and people weren't surprised. The pressure at that depth was incredible. Uh, 3,600 pounds per square inch is what it is right there at that level, at that depth. But what was, listen to this, what was surprising to the people investigating and searching for this sub was that they saw fish at that a depth. How can that be? These fish didn't have inches of steel to protect them. They had you know, just barely, barely a fraction of an inch of, of, of skin and scale, whatever it might be. How can these fish survive under all that pressure? How come they're not crushed by the weight of the water? Well, they have a secret. And the secret is that they have the same pressure inside themselves as they have outside. It's survival under pressure inside and outside, and I cannot help but think of First John, where it says the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We have the Spirit within us, and that Spirit who is within us is greater than that who is in the world. Do we take advantage of that and realize that ultimately we are on the winning team do you know what the most quoted Old Testament verse is in the New Testament? Do you know? And it's quoted frequently. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. It's quoted by Peter after Pentecost, and the first sermon ever preached after Pentecost occurs. And it's this right here, and appears multiple places in the New Testament. Why? Because it's trying to tell us the war is over, it's won. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. In David's day, David who wrote this, if you were the victorious king and you overcame a different kingdom in battle, you would bring the king who was defeated into your chamber to where your throne was, and they would literally sometimes put their feet on that defeated king's neck and use it as a footstool. What are the New Testament writers telling us? What is Peter telling us? The Lord God the Father said to our Lord, Jesus, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Well, together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit took care of the enemies, and now that's where Satan is ultimately. It's hard for us to grasp that because of what you and I have to face each and every day, but that is the truth. That is the reality. Yeah, we still have the skirmishes to face, but ultimately, ultimately, Jesus wins, and because he does, we do. You know what's a little weird about all this? I didn't even talk about Revelation, <laughs> and that's what Revelation is all about, is that Christ is victorious. I learned, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, right? Didn't even get to that, but it's a powerful sign of Christ's victory, Revelation, and but you know what else is a great sign of Christ's victory is this table right down here. Because this was D-Day. We're waiting for V-Day for ourselves. Christ is already celebrating that. And those who have gone on before us are celebrating it. But this is a celebration of what Christ did for us, the great victory on the cross and with his resurrection. So let's prepare ourselves for this. And we're going to do this the usual way, where you guys will uh, exit out toward that wall and come up and then go back to where you're sitting. You guys will come down this way, go back, you guys toward the wall, and then go back to where you're sitting. And... Uh, uh, Let's prepare ourselves for the table now. Will you pray with me? Thank you, O God, that the war is won. And yet, yes, we still are warriors here engaged in battle. Uh, Sometimes it seems like we're overwhelmed and things are stacked against us. But because of your spirit living within us, the odds are not stacked against us. And because we have eternal life with you, the odds are not stacked against us. So let us celebrate that eternal life beginning even now, Uh, battling against the evil one with our prayers, with our faithfulness, with our commitment to the church, even with our laughter that we can show such joy that it drives evil crazy. Thank you so much for what this means that by the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood, you made us whole and you helped us to defeat evil yourself. It's a mysterious gift that we don't deserve, but we give you thanks. So may we partake of this meal with a new sense of joy and gratitude. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.